Don't know if you're familiar with the name Philip Brooks. Um, if you've driven down Boylston, right here in Boston, you may have seen a statue that looks like this, a monument that looks like this. That is Philip Brooks. Philip Brooks was an <clears throat> Episcopalian priest, a clergyman, who lived between 1853 and 1893. He was born here in Boston, served uh, various parts of the country, including Philadelphia, came back, served as a pastor here in Boston, and he is buried in Cambridge. He lived during the American Civil War. And as you can imagine, being a pastor, being a clergyman during any conflict is challenging, but a conflict that you're, where your whole country is, is ripped apart was especially challenging for Philip Brooks. He lived through a time where women would come in wearing black to services every Sunday because they were always mourning someone they had lost. In the midst of this war, Brooks found himself just zapped of everything that he had to offer, all the comfort, all the, all the words, everything that he had to offer. The war came to an end, and he thought he had time, he had peace, the war coming to an end was followed by the assassination of Lincoln. And at 30 years old, here's Philip Brooks. He was one of the well, most well-known orators of the country, and he's called to eulogize President Lincoln. And he stood. He gave a beautiful eulogy. He gave a beautiful speech. And right after that, he found himself completely drained. There was nothing else he had to give. And so the church, sensing that, sent him off on a sabbatical. He went off to the Middle East of all places. He went off to Israel and he, he was exploring. And he found himself on a Christmas Eve on top of a horse, on a horseback, riding into Bethlehem. He's on this road into Bethlehem, and keep, if you can picture this place, it's, it's dry, it's dusty, it's, it's rocky, it's hilly, but there is a town, a little town of Bethlehem that's coming up. And as he ponders on this serene uh, moment, he is exhausted, he is, he is in need of just energy, and it's, as, he's walking, as he's coming in, he's suddenly hit with the awe, suddenly infused with the energy of the whole Spirit of God. And a couple of years later, as, he was, as the church was about to celebrate Christmas Eve, he was asked by his church to, to minister to the children. Philip Brooks loved the children of the church, and he would sing to them. And so he's, he's coming up, and he's thinking about what he, should, what he should put together and the song that he should sing. And he reflected back, on that day, riding on the horse, riding horseback into the, into the town of Bethlehem. And these are the words that he penned. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the ears are met in thee tonight. Those beautiful words coming out of exhaustion, coming out of tiredness, but meeting with the work of God.
And as, you can, as you've probably surmised by now, we're starting a new series, especially as we go into Christmas here at Mount Hope, where for the next few weeks, we're, we're going to look at a few carols, common carols that we often sing, but wonderful, wonderful pieces of work that just explains to us who God is and how God, how God works. Remember that path that I mentioned to you a few moments ago when I said, keep this path in mind. I want to take you back there for a moment. And I want to tell you a story. And as most stories go, once upon a time in Israel, there was a family. Now, to give you a little bit of context about who this family is, they lived in a time called the season of the judges. Now, the judges, you can find there's a book Call the judges in the Old Testament. And it was a time before the kings where God would raise up judges in the, in, the, in the country of Israel, in the nation of Israel. And his goal with raising up judges was that they would lead the people in worship of him. That they would lead the people in adoration and lead the people in the right way of living. But as you can imagine, that was not always the case. There were highs and lows, the highs where they would follow God, and then another judge would come, and it would completely fall apart. As a matter of fact, this was a time of hopelessness and fear. They were invaded by foreign armies. It was just chaos. Judges ends with this verse. In 21 verse 25, you read, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what? was right in their own eyes. It was chaos. And into this, we see the story of a family. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. If you have your Bibles with me, would you follow along? Or it will be on the screen. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife, and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. They lived there for about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and a husband. As we come into this passage, you're immediately presented with some irony. The irony is this. There's a famine, but the famine takes place in Israel, and especially in this town of Bethlehem. You may ask, why the irony? Because the word Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem, it essentially means Beth, the house, Lehem, bread. It's the house of bread, and in the house of bread is a famine. And so you have this family who's, who's living there who suddenly has no food. And so what do they do? Like most of us, if we were in a similar circumstance, we'd look for a place to grow our family, a place to go settle down so that we're, we're, not, we're not stuck in this. Elimelech takes his family and they leave. 
Now, here's the second bit of this irony. They leave Bethlehem and they go into Moab. Now, you may ask, what's so big about that? You see, the Moabites and the Israelites were enemies. As a matter of fact, the Moabites were extremely evil. They did exactly everything that was opposite to what God's commands was. Moabites, as a people, they came out of of an came out of an incestuous relationship, and it was just people who, who had set themselves against God. Now, these are people who worship demonic idols. They worship demonic gods who require sacrifices of their own children. And into this, Elimelech and his family moves in. Now, Elimelech, a little bit extending on the irony, Elimelech, the name means God is king. So the one who who declares every time his name is said, God is king, is moving his entire family out of the place of God into the place of evil. His wife, Naomi, her name is pleasant. Her name means sweet. She's a sweetheart. They're two sons. They have a son, Malon, which translated means sickly. And they have a son, Kilion, which translated means dying. So you have your son, sickly and dying. In modern day terms, my son, Ebola, and my son, swine flu. (laughs) It's essentially what they were saying. And here you have this family moving into a place of the curse. Now, the story goes, it continues where it says, Elimelech dies. It's a big deal when the patriarch of the family dies because with the, the loss of the male, the patriarch, there is a loss of status. There's a lot of things that kind of falls apart. But Naomi has hope because she has two sons, two sons who would take care of, take care of her, but those two sons go marry Moabite women. And within a few years, the two sons die too. Now here you have a woman, a woman who is completely broken, completely destroyed, completely stripped of everything that she held dear. But my question, before we proceed into the story, my question is this, why did Elimelech go? Why did he uproot his entire family? Why did he take his family out of the place, the bread basket of Israel, and move them into this place, a curse, into a place where he would die, where his sons would die? Why does it seem like sometimes as people of God, we make poor choices? See, we, right now we have the luxury of looking back and judging them and saying, oh, that was a poor choice. Because we have the luxury of the word of God telling us. But sometimes let's put ourselves in those shoes. As a matter of fact, even today, when we are presented with chaos, when we are presented with issues in our our surroundings and we're forced to make a decision, what is our metric by which we make this decision? You see, every choice that we make, there are two forces acting on it. One, hope, and the other, fear. There's hope and there's fear. Elimelech hoped that when he moved his family, he would escape the famine. He would find place of prosperity. He would find a place where he could put down roots. He, found, he would find a place where he could, 
his family would survive. But he's also being driven by fear of what would happen if he stayed. So often, if we, if we look at our own lives, we're also driven by the same forces. We're driven by hope. A lot, most of the decisions that we make, we hope something good will come out of it. We hope that we will get some benefit from the decision we make. We take a job because we're looking for financial freedom, or we take a job because we, we're, we're looking for meaning and purpose, and there's hope in that. But we also go towards it because of fear. We fall back into old patterns and ways because of the fear of what's ahead. The question is, what happens next? That question often drives us to do things, whether it's in hope or in fear. But the, the thing that matters is no matter what you do, you're going to be influenced by hope and fear. The question is, what is the object of your hope or fear? For Elimelech, the famine was tough. But his response, instead of what God had called him to do, staying in the, basket, in the house of bread, in the place of provision, was to step outside of God's promise. His response was to look beyond what God could do for him. Because what he saw in the place of God's promise was just emptiness. He just saw famine. And so he decided to go outside of God's provision. His trust was his own abilities. His trust was in his own circumstances, in his surroundings, things that he could do. You see, it seems like an easy decision that he had made. Sometimes easy decisions are the wrong ones. Don't we do the same? When life gets tough around us, instead of seeking God in it, we seek to get out of it. And often doing so, sometimes we come across bad choices. Limelech hoped for a better life. However, he went outside of the scope of what God had called him to. See, they, the place that they put their hope in is what eventually destroyed him and his sons. And now, let's come back into the story, and here you come back to that pathway back into Bethlehem. This is not so much a Kodak moment as it is a Kleenex moment. You have three women making their way back from Moab into, into, into Bethlehem, and they are bawling their eyes out. They are crying. In chapter 1, you can read through some of the, some of the passages, and, and they're talking about the things that she's going to go back to. And she looks, Naomi looks at her two daughters, daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and she says, choose. You have to choose right now. Because me, I have nothing left. I'm actually bitter. Naomi, who meant pleasant. Naomi, who meant sweet. Now she's calling herself bitter because in verse 13 she says, for the sake of the hand of God, the Lord that has gone out against me. In other words, she's saying, the Lord did this to me, and I'm bitter because of it. I am broken because of it. But let me ask you, in reality, whose fault was it? What was, who was to blame for the circumstances they were in? God did not move them out of the land of bread. It was their choice. 
As we come into, into this moment, it's a moment, the backdrop is, is pain. The moment, in this moment where they're sitting and crying, the backdrop is bad choices. The backdrop is sad decisions. The backdrop is sad circumstances. And that's where they find themselves. And so she's looking at this and she's saying, I'm going back to Israel. I'm going back to my God. But you choose for yourself. And so she's presenting this choice to Orpah and to Ruth. And she says, here, I'm going to go back. You go back to your families. Because for them to go back to their families, that's where safety is. That's where their people are. That's where provision is. And Orpah considers this and she says, okay. Ruth considers this. And she decides Essentially, the choice that she was, and Naomi was giving them was, if you choose me, you're also choosing my God, but nothing else is guaranteed. Choice is this, me and Yahweh, and nothing else, essentially. Or you could go back to your old life, where you had everything you wanted. Yahweh and nothing or everything minus Yahweh. That's the choice she's presenting to them. Orpah considers this, and Orpah says, you know what, I'm back, I'm going, I'm leaving. She parts ways, but Ruth, she says these words in chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, verses that we often see in weddings, and we often see, and we adore, we admire but with much pain behind it, she says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you, where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and also if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth looks at her circumstance and chooses. This is essentially her conversion moment. She says, I choose God. I know my circumstance. I know where I'm coming from. I know I'm a Moabite. I know I don't deserve any of the blessings that God has given that belongs to the people of Israel, but I choose you. I choose your God. As we come into the Christmas season, we too are are faced with a choice like this. You see, Christmas, especially around Christmas, especially with the Advent, we celebrate the coming of a child. We celebrate the coming of a king. And with the coming of a king, we're presented with a choice. Do you believe in him or not? Do you, would you... Forsake everything that you have. Forsake everything that you're a part of. Forsake everything that you've known. And would you pursue this king? Or would you go back to what you know? Choose choose Jesus or life as you know it. Ruth chose God. Now as we fast forward into the story, Naomi and Ruth, they're back in Bethlehem. Now they've got to eat. So Ruth says to Naomi, I'll go out into the fields and I'll glean what the harvesters have left behind. There's a, there's a pattern there. There's, a, there's, an, active, there's an action there that, that takes him looking into. 
You see, in what was happening was God had told the landowners, God had told the people of Israel, saying, when you harvest your lands, don't harvest it all. Don't clean it up completely. It's okay if you forget a few bushels. It's okay if you forget a few sheaves. Because what that allows is you are blessed, and the remainder, the people who are in need, the people who are poor, the people who are struggling, they can come in and glean what you have left behind. And so Ruth decides to do that. So she sets out, she sets out to go get food. But there is a little bit of context here. In chapter 2, verse 1, and I'm going to read from the the message version, it says, It so happened that Naomi had a relative by marriage, a man prominent and rich, connected with Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. Keep Keep those first three words in mind. It so happened. So Ruth is in the field. Guess who walks in? Boaz walks in. Boaz sees Ruth. Boaz sees Ruth with all the other people who had come to glean the harvest and says, Boaz brings her in and and says, you can have what, go with the harvesters, go with my servants, you can have whatever you want. It so happened that Boaz walked in. You may be wondering why I'm stressing the it so happened. Happenstance. We may even call it coincidence. But my question is, is it really? See, so often when we talk about God intervening in people's lives, we often talk about the big moments. We talk about, in in biblical stories, we'll talk about God parting the waters. There's a moment We'll talk about God touching the dead man and he's coming to life. That's a big moment. God touching, uh, Jesus touching the the leper and the leper is completely healed. There's a moment, the man who is let down into into the house and, and God, he touches him and there's a moment. These are big, miraculous moments. And most of us sitting in this room, we have stories of how God miraculously touched us. Maybe it was a car accident that we should have died in and God protected us. Or maybe it was cancer that the, the doctors look, one day it's there and the next day it's gone. Or maybe it's, it's some sort of supernatural provision that he gave, a job that you were never qualified for, but God opened a door and there you go. God's intervention. And we look at that and those are to be celebrated. But that's not common. But what is common is God in the everyday. It so happened. We may look at it and say, oh, it's coincidence. But what if we looked at it as a chessboard? Pieces moving around on the board. You see, as the pieces on the board, the rook does not really know the move it's going to make. The bishop does not know. The queen does not know. These are all pieces that are on the board, but there is a chess master moving those pieces around. The chess master is the one looking at the board, looking, coming up with strategy, coming up with moves, and saying, this goes there. What's happening in this story is a chess match being played out. God arranging the pieces in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. You see, he works through what theologians call providence. 
He takes the seemingly normal activities, decisions of people, and he uses them to carry out his purposes in us and through us. The things that we think are just everyday activities, the things that we may consider coincidences, he actually ordains. So this week, when you go out and the conversations you may have at the water cooler at work, or the person you share an Uber ride with, we may count those as just happenstance. But in God's economy, those are ordained. Because you see, in all of these moments, in all of even the simplest, even the most complicated, he is at work, he is moving, he is active, he is organizing, he is accomplishing his purpose in and through your life. We may not be aware of the movements, the strategies, or even the results, uh, results until they have happened. But this is our confidence that the chess master is at work. Look at your lives. Look back at your lives. I can guarantee you the fingerprints of God are all over it. Look at the pieces that fit your life and watch and discern how he moved them. Because the confidence that we have as people, whether you're a believer or not, is that God is moving. The fact that you are here today is because he drew you close to him. The fact that we're hearing the gospel being preached is because his Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. When it comes to our view of life, some of us, we have what, we, what people would call a fatalistic view, a deterministic view. Essentially what it says is, things are set, my fate is set, no matter what I do, it's not going to change. So why bother? Or some of us on the other end of the spectrum, we go with, we're a little more freer. We say, hey, if it happens, it happens. No sweat. See, our faith is that we're not at the mercy of blind deterministic forces. Neither are we just bobbling along like a cork in the ocean to and fro wherever the waves take us. Our our story, our confidence is that the grand chess master, that is God, is providentially working in the life, in all of our lives, in all of our free human choices, in all our decisions, in all our responsibilities. He's involved. He doesn't overwhelm you. He's not going to make you do anything. He lets you do it. Even in the good and in the bad, he is still working. See, that gives us freedom, that gives us, that gives us peace because we know that if God is working, then I don't have to worry about it all. That he is the one that sets things in motion. And when I do make a mistake, it's not the end of life. That when I do mess up, he is there guiding me back. God is at work. Psalm 37, 23, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their life. As we come back to the story, it so happens that Boaz walks in. It so happens that all these circumstances fit together. 
And later that day, as, Naomi, as Ruth goes back home, she has a bundle of food. She, has, she takes it all home, and Naomi and, uh, asks her, how did this happen? Ruth tells her the story. And in chapter 2, verse 20, this is how she responds. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Now there's a phrase in there that I'd like to take a moment to look at. That phrase, family redeemer. Some of us would call it a kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? This goes back to when Israel, Israel left Egypt where there were slaves. They came through the desert. They came through the wilderness and they're finally in the promised land and they get to the promised land and there's all this land available. So what do they do? They divide it up by tribes. They divide it up by families. Each and every person has an inheritance. But guess what? God knew that life would happen, that good and bad decisions would be made. Some would lose their inheritances. Some would lose out on the promises that God had given them because of circumstances. And Elimelech's family is a prime example. Because of circumstances, they have no land, they have no money, they have no status, they have nothing. But what God does, knowing that this, is a, this would happen, he sets one person or one or two people in that family, a person who is able to become their redeemer. So a family member looks at them and says, you know what, you've lost your land, but let me buy it back for you. And so Boaz is this person. This person could go redeem the person's the, the property. The, the person could redeem the person. The person could go fight for justice on behalf of the injured party. Boaz is the redeemer. See, this is the heart of God. He is a redeemer. He redeems people from their loss. God put that in law because he knew he did not want someone suffering for the rest of their life because of a choice or a decision. He didn't want someone to be penalized and to suffer the consequences for the rest of their life. And so he puts this provision in place. And so Boaz redeems Naomi's land. Boaz, in the process, redeems Ruth by marrying her. Boaz became their kinsman redeemer. In chapter 4, verse 17, as the book comes to a close, the women, of, women are in, in Israel, in Bethlehem, look at Naomi and they call her blessed because she had come when she had returned to Bethlehem. She was broken. She was nothing. She had lost everything that, she, that belonged to her. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. And yet God had restored it all. Through the blessing, through the redemption that between Boaz and Ruth, they have a son. And this is what it says. A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. David, the king of Israel. There's a story. There's a story of a foreigner who did not, who was not worthy of the blessings that belonged to the people of Israel, who, who had no part to play, but God brings her in. 
God brings her in. Because you see that question that I asked before, what is the object of our hopes and worries? In all of these decisions, there's hopes, there's fears. Everything's at play. In Elimelech, his hope was on the things that the world could provide. For Ruth and for Naomi, their hope was in their kinsman redeemer. Where's your hope? No matter what you go through in life, there's hope and fear that attaches on. Where, where do they, what is the object of your hope? Let's go back to that pathway, the pathway that we saw Philip Brooks, the pathway where we saw these three women. I want to tell you another story. And here's the story of a man and his wife, his pregnant wife making their way back to Bethlehem. A pregnant wife who could not find a place to give birth to her baby boy. She finds a stable. Bethlehem, the house of bread, is where Jesus would be born. In Micah chapter 5, verses 2, Micah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He's looking, this is way before Jesus comes on the scene. He's looking at Bethlehem, and he's prophesying, and he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me the one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. A town that's little, a town that's insignificant, but out of you will come a child. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, there is a Redeemer coming. Every child, when he or she is born, is born into hopes and fears. It's just reality. As most of you know, my wife and I, we're expecting our, our child within a couple of weeks. And this child is coming to hopes and fears. This child, we have great hopes for this child. We have hopes of what he will do, what he'll become, our relationship with him, our, his relationship with all of you. We have, all, we have great hopes. But along with those hopes, we have fears. Our fears along the lines of, will we be good parents? Will this child be crazy and out of control and colicky and all of, all of those things come. There's fears that attaches to every child. But the reality is every child that has been born, hopes are often, let, they let you down. Now look at yourself. Look at me. We've all let down people who have hoped in us. And some of us, and many of us, the fears that were feared came true. Hopes were, hopes were let down and fears were realized. But there was a child that was born. And Philip Brooks sings about this child. All the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. It is in this child. This child that will be born perfect that would live perfect, that would die perfect. And the very reason he is here is because 
He becomes our redeemer. You see, the story of Ruth and Naomi points to the fact that Ruth and Naomi had a circumstance that they could not crawl out of. They could not work their way out of it. There was a famine in the land that they could not address. There was a a famine in their souls that they could not fix. They needed a kinsman redeemer to come into their situation. They needed someone external to come in and pull them out. The reality of our situations, the reality of our story is that we are broken, that we are a sinful people. We need a redeemer. Jesus becomes our redeemer. The story of the Old Testament of Ruth points to what Jesus is about to do. The story of Christmas is this, that we're all broken people. The story of Advent is this, that there's a child coming in whom all the hopes and fears will be realized. The hopes will be realized and fears will be resolved. There's a child coming. The question is here is, what are your hopes? What are your fears? And in whom are they realized? We have a God who is a grand chess master, moving the pieces, organizing life so that he could accomplish his work in and through us. I'll conclude with this. There was a, just recently there was a story of Aldi Adilang, Indonesian fisherman, 19 years old. His job was simply this. He would live out in a hut that looked like that, a hut that was moored, that was anchored into the ground on, in the ocean. He would fish for a few days, and he would bring his fish back. But one day, with the storm, the hut came off its anchors and floated into the ocean. Now, Aldi, he was, he was in, in this situation, he had food and water for just a few days, but then the food started to run out. The water started to run out. He would fish to eat. And for, for drink, he would hold out his shirt and wait for rain. And when rain came, that's how he drank. And so eventually, he was rescued. And when he was rescued, the newscasters and the journalists asked him, a, asked him the, his question, their questions. One of the questions they asked was, what was your greatest fear? What was your greatest fear in all this? And as one would expect, you would think, hey, maybe I'm running out of food or maybe I'm running out of water or the sun beating down on me. Those were all fears. But for him, the fear was rooted in the fact that for 49 days in that hut, as he floated along, 10 ships passed him by. 10 ships. It was the 10th ship that finally rescued him. And his fear was this, that I would never be saved. His fear was I would not be seen, that I would not matter, that I would not be saved. Now, if we're truly honest, those are our fears too. Those are our hopes. Our hopes is that we will be seen, that we'll be recognized, that we will, people will flock to us, people will understand us, that we, will, that we matter to those who love us, that we will be saved. But along with those hopes, those are also our greatest fears, that we will, 
Our fear is that we will not matter. Our fear is that we will not be seen. Our fear is that we will not be, will not be saved. You see, Israel lived like that for years. They waited. When Brooks says all the fears, hopes and fears of the years, he's talking about Israel who had waited and waited and waited for their Messiah to come. The years pass and the years forward. All met in Christ. So this morning as we come to a close, we're going to close here, we're going to pray. My question is this. We all, it's, it's a fact, we have hopes, we have fears. But what is the object of those hopes and fears? Is it in what you can do and what you can accomplish in how you can manufacture situations or in your family or in, in the people that, that you consider? Or is it in the baby that was born in Bethlehem? Is it on that Redeemer that God himself sent? Because if it's not, today is a great opportunity. Today is a great moment. Today is the moment for you to make that the object of your trust. I would ask you as you go into this Christmas season, as you start on December 1st, as we go closer and closer each day, as we reflect on who Christ is and how he comes, that you do make him the object of your faith. So as we pray, would you pray with me? There are some of us who need to respond to this call. There are some of us who need to respond like Ruth responded. There are some of us who have, uh, we have responded like Orpah did, walking away, saying, this is not for me. But God in his mercy is calling you back. So take a moment, take a moment to pray. Take a moment to surrender. For those of us who've, this is who we are. This is what we live. This is our life. Take a moment to surrender again. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you. Thank you for your goodness, your grace. Thank you for your providence, Lord. We thank you for you are the grand chess master moving and strategizing and winning. Lord, we thank you for the work that you do in and through us. Lord, we thank you for the stories of Ruth and Naomi and how they point to the fact that we, each and every one of us, need you as our Redeemer. You are our kinsman redeemer. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. Lord, lead us to you. Open our hearts, open our minds to you. Open our lives to you. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.